you for shepherding our hearts with the word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I know it says uh, Genesis 27 through 50, and we'll cover all of that and more this morning. But if uh, you could turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to start with the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. They're actually Christ's words to his church. The title of our exposition for this morning is God's Hope for the Unholy. And hopefully this will be a fitting preparation of our hearts for Holy Week and for Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. First, Thessalonians 4 verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness, hagiasmos, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word for immorality is porneas. Any intimacy that is contrary to the will or word of God. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of God's word. It's very clear. The Lord God, who created the universe in six days and who saves sinners at the foot of the cross, he is holy. His life is holy. His love is holy. His word is holy. And what is clearly of utmost importance to God, not secondary, not optional, utmost importance from his mouth, not mine, is the holiness of his children and his church. Can we say the same of ourselves? Is the holiness of God of utmost importance to us? Is the holiness of our brothers and sisters of utmost importance to us? As we think of the past year, and we think of the many things that we all lose sleep over, as we think of the hard decisions and the difficulties and the trials, as we think about the things in the church that we lose sleep over, 
as we think about the things that have divided the church in America over the last year. Should we wear a mask? Should we not? Should we be vaccinated? Should we not? Should we gather? Should we not? How many nights have we lost sleep over our holiness or over the holiness of the people who sit next to us? Sadly, brothers and sisters, you know this. We live in a time and a place where the holiness of God is seen to be of very little importance to our individual lives and very little importance to the church. Budgets are important to the church. Programs are important to the church. What we do, where we go, these things are things that are important. The praise, what we do, all of these different things, your preacher, all of these things are important. But what about the holiness of God, brothers and sisters, and where does that fit in? And yet, according to the Apostle Paul, what we just, la- what we just heard, our salvation is inseparable from the holiness of God. You can't separate the two. You can't say, I am saved, but I'm okay with being unholy. They are not separate. And to separate them is to try and separate Christ from the cross. The gospel life is very, very clearly a life of holiness. And to disregard God's call and command to holiness is, according to the Apostle Paul and Christ himself and the Holy Spirit, to disregard God himself. We cannot profess, brothers and sisters, to be Christians, followers of Christ, and not be burdened about His holiness and our holiness. And to help us appreciate this gospel truth this morning, we're going to look at the God-breathed words of Genesis 38 and to the life and story of one of Jacob's sons. And when we think of Jacob's sons, we most typically think of Joseph, the famous one, the recipient of the famous coat of many colors, the 17-year-old who was sold into slavery by his brothers, But then, by God's sovereign grace and promise, he becomes the prince of Egypt and he becomes the savior of his people and arguably the world. But the less popular story, which we don't hear about too often, is the story of Joseph's older stepbrother, Judah. And this is because it's not a pretty story. It's the chapter which most people skip over. And much of it is a testimony of what it looks like to disregard the holiness of God. Much of it, quite frankly, looks like us. And yet, in the end, God's grace and His mercy redeems Judah to bring the hope of His holiness to a very unholy people. It is the hope, if you will, for unholy people. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. And I need to warn you in advance, this is an ugly chapter which most people don't read. And there's a reason for that. It is rough. And just to prepare you for it, in Genesis 37, Moses provides his inspired account about how Joseph's brothers in jealousy and hatred 
first try to kill Joseph by throwing him into an empty well until one brother proposes that they can do better by selling Joseph into slavery. Why kill family and have blood on your hands when you can sell them and get 20 pieces of silver and probably sell it in unholy living? Well, this clever brother who comes up with this plan is Judah, Jacob and Leah's fourth son. And before Moses goes on to explain what becomes of Joseph in Egypt, in Genesis 39, Moses devotes an entire chapter, Genesis 38, to show us what becomes of Judah over the next 20 years. What becomes not just of Judah, but anyone when we choose to disregard the holiness of God. And it is a descent into darkness and into wickedness and immorality. Have a look with me at Genesis. We'll go back a little bit to Genesis 37, 31. Then they took Joseph's robe, those are his brothers, and they slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Genesis 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hirah. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shuah. And he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again. And bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shalach. And Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shalach, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirach the Adilamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. 
For she saw that Shalach was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Aniam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shalach, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, brothers and sisters, it's not pretty, but it is still the inspired and inerrant Word of God. And when it comes to shining a light on our depravity and our desperate need for a Savior and a desperate need for forgiveness, God's Word pulls no punches. There is no gloss. There is no Instagram spin. Genesis 38 is a God-breathed testimony of what happens when someone who is born into a family of faith, he was not born a pagan, he was not born a Gentile, he was not born into a family where he did not witness or see the presence or promises of God. Genesis 38 is a testimony of what happens when someone who is born as a son in the household of God's promise, chooses to disregard the holiness of God and His Word, and instead chooses to live for Himself. And when we talk about the holiness of God, we are talking about the infinite greatness, the infinite goodness, the infinite worth of God and His Word. 
That's what sets apart God. That's what sets apart His Word. It's infinite goodness, it's greatness, and it's worth. We are finite, we are limited, we're corruptible. But God is not. It's another way of saying God is special. And when we treat God and the things of God as ordinary or no big deal or optional, we are trampling on the holiness of God. We're saying, God, you're really not worth a whole lot. My meal today at lunch, my camp for my children, my college education, my career, these things are more pressing and more urgent and worth more to me or are of more value to me than the Lord who created us. And that's exactly what Judah does. And it brings us to our first point for this morning. God's word shines the light on our wicked and immoral lives. God's word shines the light on our wicked and immoral lives. And to know what the Lord God and what Moses both think of Judah, all you have to do is just listen to the words. And the words, the two sets of words that are repeated in this passage are wicked in the sight of the Lord and immorality. Verse 7 and 10, wicked in the sight of the Lord, is used to describe the conduct of Judah's first two sons. And in verse 24, immoral is used twice. Immoral and immorality. It's first used by the locals to describe the conduct of Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. But ultimately, this becomes an ironic indictment of Judah who when his own sin is finally exposed, he confesses, she is more righteous than I. She's more right before the Lord, which is saying a lot in light of what we just heard. Now this term wickedness, it's an old-fashioned term, makes us feel uncomfortable. Wicked in the sight of the Lord. What's being described in God's language and scripture, wickedness, is any desire, any choice, any action that rejects the holiness of God by disregarding His Word. Any desire, any choice, any action that rejects the holiness of God by disregarding His Word. Now, we define wickedness as mass murderers, people who go shoot lots of people, people who end up in prison for life. But in Scripture, wickedness and wickedness in the sight of the Lord is anything that tramples on the holiness of God by disregarding His Word, by saying it's irrelevant or it's not important or carrying on as if it doesn't exist. And what's interesting is you go through the Scriptures and you go through the Torah and you see what's described as wicked. Well, there are things that we don't usually associate with that term. One of the first things is grumbling, complaining. That's why the Lord in Philippians, Paul says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. It's not just a nice thing to do. In God's eyes, it's considered to be wicked. That's why we labor with our children, do we not? It comes naturally to our hearts to grumble. Grumbling is a demonstration of our original sin and our total depravity. We grumble at the drop of a hat, all of us, myself included. Hot day, grumble. Don't get the potatoes on my plate or the rice the way I like it. Grumble. Okay, we go down these things. But look at Numbers 14, 27. I, I, no, I didn't. 
They fell short. Numbers 14, 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? Grumbling in the Lord's eyes is considered to be wicked. Why? Because it says, I'm more important than God. I'm better than God. I've seen God's miracle. I've seen what he's done. And you know what? He's not doing it right. It's a disregard for God's word and his promise. And it's a disregard for his holiness. God is not special. He's whatever. Okay, the other behaviors. Exodus 23.1, slander, slander. Bearing false witness against someone. Saying something that is not true that cuts someone down. Wicked in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because our God is a God of truth. And the judgment of a person is the Lord's to judge. It is not ours. And so when we say things about anyone, our children, our spouses, our friends, our church members, our co-workers, people we don't like, and it is not true, and it's meant to take them down to put us up, in the eyes of the Lord, that's considered to be wicked. Idolatry. That one's obvious, right? You worship another God. What does it say of the holiness of God and His Word? And finally, immorality, where in Genesis 13, 13, the men of Sodom are called immoral. And what is immoral in Scripture? In the Hebrew, it's the word zanach. In Greek, the same word for this term is porneo. And it refers not to a picture. It refers to any relationship. And any intimacy between two parties that is contrary to the will and word of God. Any relationship and any intimacy between two parties that is contrary to the will and word of God. Now we like to make it really narrow. But scripture does not. And it uses this term immoral to describe Israel's unholy alliance with idolatrous nations. Be not unequally yoked. And when Israel made deals with other nations that worshipped other gods, in God's eyes that was considered to be a porneo, an immoral relationship. And similarly with our friendships, our business associates, what we do, what we say, what we associate with, There's a lot more in God's eyes because he calls his people to be separate, to be set apart for him. His desire and love is that his children would be holy so that they can be with him rather than be separated by sin or the things of this world. It's an expression of God's love for us, this desire for our holiness. And he gives these definitions and these words for our protection, brothers and sisters, and for our care. Christians are so interested in looking how we can do whatever we can do. Well, is this really it? Is this really it? And we look at all the different ways we can carve it up, right? Guys, Pastor Mark, is it really, where in the Bible does it say it's a sin that I go and drink or I go to a club? It's not the issue. The issue is how close do you want to walk with the Lord or how close do you want to walk with the world? What's in your heart and what's the desire and what do you really love and what are you looking for? Are you looking for Jesus or are you looking for a good time? 
Well, in Genesis 38, the Lord shows us the pattern and path of Judah's life and his influence. And it's a path and pattern of wickedness and immorality. It's a series of idolatrous choices and steps that increasingly ignores the holiness of God and his word. And it increasingly, as you see, brings sin and death not only for him, but for everybody, including his sons and other people. Sin, brothers and sisters, sticks. And it doesn't just stick to the person who perpetrates it. And we see this horribly in Judah's family. And in Genesis 38, Judah lives as if God is not present. That's what we're seeing in this chapter. If you're horrified and disturbed, good. You should be. If you're burdened, good. You should be. Because this is what it looks like, brothers and sisters, to live as if God is not present, he is not watching, and he does not care, and his word is not true. And quite frankly, many times that's the way we function as soon as we walk out the church doors. It is, as we describe it in this day and age, Judah is a functional agnostic. He may do some of the customs and some of the traditions, but how he carries on functionally is as if God isn't in the room, and even if he is, it really doesn't matter, have any consequences on his life. Judah is his own God. He does whatever he wants. He is selfish. And when there's a problem, where does he look and what does he do? Does he look to God? No, he tries to fix it himself. He tries to manipulate and minimize and conceal the problem. One son goes in with Tamar, or excuse me, one son goes in, gets killed. Second son, well, why don't you have the second son? Second son goes in, gets killed. And then when he comes to the end, well, a lot of people are getting killed when they go and hang out with Tamar. So third son, we're going to wait on this. He's managing and manipulating the whole situation. He's trying to fix it himself. And what ends up happening is he tries to fix it himself. He makes a bigger mess, which affects more people and brings things into an uglier and uglier place. Brothers and sisters, this is the life of a godless Gentile. And herein lies the wickedness and the tragedy. According to Genesis 28, Judah is born as a son of God's holy promise to Jacob. In Genesis 28, the Lord God visits Jacob, Jacob's ladder, Jacob's on the run. And he explains to Jacob and gives Jacob a promise. He is going to be Jacob's God, and he is going to watch over and protect Jacob, and he is going to give Jacob a land, and he's also going to give Jacob many descendants. It's a promise of life to Jacob in a land and a place that is set for death. God is going to be the source of life and Jacob's life. And part of that is to give him many descendants like the dust of the earth. And who is one of the first fulfillments of that promise? It's Judah. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. He is a fulfillment of God's promise to Jacob. And later you go on and you see Jacob's sons, they're circumcised. Why are they circumcised? Because they know they are part of a covenant. They're different from all the godless pagans in the land. They belong to God. That's what that means. They have been set apart at the life-giving source of their members to God. It all belongs to God. They're raised that way. And then when you get to Genesis 30 through 33, Judah, along with his brothers, 
are eyewitnesses of the holy presence and promise of God in their family. Two times the Lord God visits Jacob while they are children, while they are in the family. The second time that the Lord God appears, he wrestles with Jacob. And Jacob hangs on to him. And you'll remember this. Jacob comes out and he gets his hip dislocated. And forever after, Jacob walks with a limp. Dad, why are you walking with a limp? What happened? They're there when it happens. When Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Don't call me Jacob. I'm Israel now. They were witnesses to all of those things. And they were also witnesses to two occasions when the Lord saved Jacob and Jacob's family. The first with Laban, when Laban comes after Jacob, and the second when Esau comes after Jacob. And on both occasions, the Lord saves and delivers and protects Jacob and fulfills his promise and is with, present with Jacob and his family. If the Lord did not intervene, Jacob would have been killed and all his belongings would have gone either to Laban or Esau, which means Judah and the rest of the family would have been slaves in their uncle's households. Instead, God takes care of them. And Jacob prospers and becomes a very, very wealthy head of a tribe and a clan. And with him, his sons become wealthy and affluent and prosperous. Men of means with a great inheritance ahead of them. But as Judah becomes a man, the Lord God tests his faith. As he tests the faith of all his children. I tell this to many of the young men who go through college. There comes a time where you grow up and you leave your father's household and the Lord is going to test you. Will you stand for the faith of your fathers? Will it become your faith? Or was that just something you grew up with? And are you going to choose to walk away from the Lord? Well, God gives that choice to all his children. He doesn't lock the doors on us. And in Genesis 37, the test that he brings to Judah's way is withholding what Judah desires. He withholds the love of Judah's father. He withholds the favor of Judah's father. He withholds the honor of the family. How does that happen? He gives Joseph, the younger brother, the place of prominence in the family. He gives Joseph the place of love in Jacob's eyes. He gives Joseph a dream that the entire family is going to bow down and worship to who? Joseph. It's a test. What do you do? Are you still going to trust in God and his promises when you don't get the relationship? When you don't get the career, when you don't get the ministry, when things don't work out the way you'd hoped or planned. Well, what does Judah and his brothers, what do they do? How do they respond to this test? When they don't get what they think is fair and right, and when they look at the other nations, they have reason to say that. All the other nations around them, the oldest son gets the most, and it goes down. The youngest son, he's down at the end. Who gets the position of favor and prominence? Well, Judah, like his brothers, chooses to give in to jealousy and hatred. And I want you to see this because, brothers and sisters, this is where wickedness starts. All those mass murders, people shooting hundreds of people, acts of terror. I was talking with our boys this morning. Where does it start? Brothers and sisters, it starts with discontent in our hearts. And believing that we deserve better than we have. And then it goes to a place where we need to make other people pay. 
be they people of different color or skin or whatever the situation is. Well, we see this is where wickedness starts. And where wickedness starts is it starts in a place that's hidden from everywhere else where nobody sees. It's concealed. And it's no big deal because it's private. Well, Judah, like his brothers, they choose to be jealous and to hate Joseph. What's interesting is they don't go to Jacob and they don't say, Dad, I've got a problem. You love one mother more than the other. You love one son more than the other. There's no discussion of that. They keep it to themselves. And they wait for an opportunity when no one will see. Concealed. Private. And they choose to trust their feelings, their desires, and their plan. Rather than trusting in God's promise that God has promised. He's going to take care of all of them. Those who bless them, he will bless. Those who curse them, he will curse. He's going to take care of them, but he's going to take care of them with Joseph as the leader. Nah, don't want that plan. Brothers and sisters, this is wickedness. Rejection of God's promise and his plan of salvation because it doesn't fit our dreams and aspirations and desires or what we think we deserve. And it comes from a grumbling heart. And the result at the end of chapter 37 is a broken relationship with a broken father and a broken family. And then Genesis 38, that's all introduction. Then Genesis 38 shows us how Judah deals with his sin and guilt over the next 20 years. Rather than confess his sin, he conceals. Rather than repent, he runs. Rather than trusting in God, And turning to God for mercy and grace, he turns to the world for distraction and comfort. Verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. He didn't want to hang out with his brothers anymore. After all that nastiness and seeing Jacob saying, I'm going to go down dying to my brother and sorrow, sad and heartbroken. It's like, who wants to hang around that home? I'm taking off. And where does he go? Well, he turned aside to a certain Adelamites. The Adelamites live in the land of Canaan. They are typically not circumcised people. They worship many gods and they indulge in all those practices. The people he was raised not to associate with or to marry their women. Friendship with the world, brothers and sisters, is enmity with God. He wants to get away from his family, get away from his people, get far away from his guilt so we can forget about it. Verse 2. What happens next? There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. We don't start looking, brothers and sisters, in places we shouldn't look out of the blue. It starts, brothers and sisters, with discontent and dissatisfaction with our God, His goodness and His promises, and what He's given us. And we start running and looking for other things. And we start going to a place where we can try and cover up and provide comfort and forget about our guilt and our sin. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. He becomes unequally yoked. It's what his fathers and forefathers have always said. Don't marry the Canaanite women. And later you'll see it's because they will turn your heart away from the Lord. And what's the result in verse 3 through 11? From Judah's seed, there is a line of wicked and immoral sons. And they are so bad, God destroys two of them. And Judah is so hardened and so blind, he thinks Tamar's the problem. 
The woman's always the problem, right? It's Tamar's the problem. And what pattern are we seeing here over and over again? Starting with Joseph. Hide and conceal. Hide and conceal. Hide and conceal. Blame someone else. Hide and conceal. Blame someone else. And it's wickedness. And this brings us to our next point. Running from God's holiness hardens and blinds and ensnares our hearts. Running from God's holiness hardens and blinds and ensnares our hearts. You see this descent where Judah's action and behavior gets worse and worse and worse and worse because he's running from God and he will not stop and confess his sin and come to the Lord and say, I'm going to own this, I'll handle it. John MacArthur makes a statement, when men fall, they do not fall far. We typically fall one choice or one step at a time. Verse 12, what happens? Judah's wife dies. And how does he cope? What does he do? Does he turn to God? Does he go back to his family? Does he consider the promises of God? No. He goes up to a place called Timnah with his old buddy, godless Hira, the Adullamite, looking for a good time. And he goes up during sheep shearing time. Why does he go up during sheep shearing time? Sheep shearing time, you shear the sheep, you get your money. It's like harvest time, except for those who shepherd sheep. Okay, and that's when all the fertility rites come out in pagan nations. And that's when all the cult prostitutes come out so that you can have a good time when you've got money in your pocket and you also want the good luck of fertility. Where's he going? How's he walking? What's the direction he's going? Do you see a habit and a pattern? I feel guilty. I've got a problem. I'm trying to cope. Let me get distracted by the pleasures of this world. And then in verse 13 through 14, Tamar, who all this time has been abandoned, he has not kept his promise to her. He shuttled her off and said, okay, you go and be a widow in your father's house until one of my sons is old enough. The idea being, if you don't have a husband, you don't have a head covering, you won't be able to have children. In the ancient Near East, you are nothing. So he shuttles her off to his father-in-law to take care of, and then he just forgets about her and moves on. Judah, who does not regard the promises of God, becomes a man of broken promises. That is why the Lord says, you keep your word. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. If you're a child of God, you honor truth. You're a man of your word. You do as you say because you represent the God of truth. Well, not Judah. If you want to become a man of broken promises, just disregard the promises of God. And so Tamar puts together a plan. She knows the habits and the reputation of her father-in-law. It's not hard. He is a fool who lives as if there is no God. So all she has to do is go on the way that he's going and take off her widow's garbs and put on a veil so he can't see her face. And he's just, all he's going to do is say, I'm coming to sheep shearing time, honey on the side of the road, here we go. And Judah is so hardened. He is so blind. He is so so ensnared by his selfishness and his lust. He is unable to see who or what is right before him. And he is the prototype 
of what we read in Proverbs of the foolish young man who is seduced by the woman with the eyelashes and the lipsticks who says, come in, come in, my husband's away, and you are so busy and so drawn and so blind, you go in hook, line, and sinker into a place of destruction and death. Unable to see, blinded. And why is he blinded? Because he's had a lifetime of taking these steps further and further and further away of dealing with his core issue, his sin over Joseph. And instead, I'm going to handle it myself and find my own dreams. Well, he's going to find his own dreams in a terrible place. And what happens? He doesn't even have the money to pay for it. So she says, well, that's okay. Give me as payment your signet, your cord, and your staff as a pledge of payment. And he does so happily. Not a problem. In the ancient Near East, your signet, your cord, your staff. It's not rocket science, right? It's your driver's license, your passport, your credit card, the title deed to your house, all of that. For a man in that time, your staff and your signet was your authority and your power. Your entire inheritance, all that you had was represented by that. He doesn't care. He is like Esau. He is willing to give his birthright and all that he has for a moment or an evening with a prostitute. And like Esau, this is what Judah thinks of all God has promised him and all God has given him. Because everything he has has been given to him by the promise of God. Verse 20 through 23, how does Judah try to recover his valuables? He sends his friend, Hira the Adullamite. That's the pagan fixer. This is what wealthy people do. You don't want to get your hands dirty. You don't want to look sketchy. You send someone else. So let's send the pagan out to go and get it. And when Hira can't find Tamar, what does he say? Let her keep the things as her own. What does he say? Or we shall be laughed at. What's first and foremost on Judah's mind? He's a concealer. It's what everybody else thinks of me. And I don't want to become a laughingstock. And look at how he uses the language. He says, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. Who is he partnered with now? He and the guy who provides him with all his worldly pleasures. Well, what does God's word say? It says, be sure your sins will find you out. It says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. You can hide for a little bit from the Lord, but the Lord sees everything. He is holy. And especially if he loves you, he's going to squeeze it so it comes out in the open. Verse 24, Tamar has a bump and everybody's talking about it. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Everybody's chattering, even in the pagan village where she is. So what does Judah do? He says, bring her out and let her be burned. He calls for a public court and execution and to give her the worst of punishments, not even to be stoned, to be burned, the worst of punishments publicly in order to get rid of his shame. He's still concealing. And this is what happens, brothers and sisters. When we do not deal with our sin and we don't turn to the Lord who offers forgiveness, we cover, we cover, we cover, we cover, we cover, we cover. 
and we bring more and more and more people into our dirt. And then finally, we start to oppose and push back at the very people who try and help us. Or we try and shame others so that we do not have to be implicated. This is pride. This is selfishness. This is the wickedness of Judah's heart. Bring her out. And so he has men go and get her. The implication of the text is there are other people who go and drag her out to be publicly burned. How blind, how hardened, and how self-righteous is Judah. Brothers and sisters, this is what wickedness and sin does in our hearts. This is a seared conscience. This is what happens when you plead and plead and plead, and there is no response. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. The conscience has been seared. This is the consequence of sin. It destroys our soul. Augustine says in his confessions, lust springs from a perverted will. And when lust is pandered to, a habit is formed. And when habit is not checked, it hardens into compulsion and necessity. And like interlinking rings, it forms a chain that binds. Augustine is showing the consequences of the invisible bondage and snarement that happens when we do not address our sin and bring it to the Lord. And in verse 25, it says, As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Verse 25. And here the Lord God begins to turn the story in the heart of Judah. And how does he do it? This is a turning point. He does it by providentially uncovering what Judah has tried to conceal the entire time. It's God's love for Judah. His kindness. He turns the tables and he takes everything that Judah's tried to hide and he puts it right there out in the open as the public trial is happening, which Judah is hoping will put all the blame on Tamar, but in actual fact it exposes him. And there's something sweet and beautiful here, and I don't want you to miss it. Verse 26, this is Judah, the runner. Then Judah identified them, and he said, he doesn't say, these are not mine, doesn't say she stole them from me. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. And this is the first time we see Judah start to talk and consider where he stands before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, when do we stop running and hiding from God? It's when, by God's grace, we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. And we begin to take responsibility for our sin. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. God's holy presence and God's holy promises offer hope for the unholy. What were the Lord God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their sons? That he would be their God, that he would be with them, that he would care for them, and that he would provide for them life in a world where there was only death. He would be their God, they would be his people. He would be their Savior and Lord. And the hope for the unholy is that the Lord God is in fact holy. Where we can't keep our promises, 
And where we can't fix our sin, he can. And his presence and his promise do not change even if we do. And how does he do it? He does it through repentance and faith in him. By bringing us to that place where we see ourselves for who we are. By faith we say we believe Lord what you say. I am willing to leave my sin and put my life in your hands. No matter what the cost. You take over because I've made a mess of it. And this brothers and sisters is the good news of Genesis. If you have your Bibles have a look at Genesis 44. And we'll briefly look at verse 16 and begin to tie this up. In Genesis 44, famine is stricken the land. The way of the transgressor is hard. And Joseph's brothers have to come to Egypt and beg for food. And Judah, probably in all likelihood, has had to go back to his family rather than living high in the hog in Canaan because there is no food. And Joseph puts his brothers to a test. And he sets them up. And he puts that cup of his in the backpack of his younger brother Benjamin. And he's testing and he wants to see where the hearts of the brothers are at. The brothers who sold him out and threw him under the bus. And when Joseph tests his brothers... And he threatens to take Benjamin, who he says, this is a spy, he's culpable, I'm going to take him, he's going to become my slave. Who is it who steps up? Well, it's a very different brother, verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? No excuses, there's nothing. What shall we say to my Lord? I've got nothing to say. What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? There's nothing we can do to fix this. The old Judah's gone. God has found out the guilt of your servants. And he's making reference not only to what Joseph is accusing them of, but everything that goes back to Joseph. He's showing it's all connected. And Judah of the brothers realizes, look, this is all connected. This is our mess. Sin isn't just a one-moment mistake. It's a litany of mistakes. No. It is a momentum and pattern of wickedness that stains everybody and everything over generations. And Judah now realizes. And he says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. And he shows whose hand. Now he's aware of God's presence. He can't run from it. It's being exposed. We are my Lord's servants. And then he owns everything. And the brother who ran and hid from God and his guilt now embraces both God and his guilt. And by faith he acknowledges that God is holy. That God is present. That God has always been present even when he denied him. And then in verse 33 of Genesis 44, instead of a signet ring or a cord or a staff as a pledge, Judah offers his life as a substitute in exchange for the life of his stepbrother Benjamin. The one who was selfish and self-centered now gives his life for a stepbrother who is loved more than he is. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that it's not fair. Doesn't matter that my dad loves him more. Doesn't matter that Benjamin's probably going to get a bigger share of the inheritance. It doesn't matter. 
take my life instead of his. Who is he foreshadowing, brothers and sisters? He's a foreshadow of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith in God breaks the chain of idolatry and sin. It's not just saying I did something wrong, brothers and sisters. It's realizing and understanding the magnitude of our offense of denying the holiness of God that we have offended him and we have trampled his name and his love underfoot and we've said we can do a better job. And repentance is, Lord, regardless of the cost, I'm going to trust you. This life belongs to you and God graciously welcomes Judah back. And he welcomes Judah back to the holiness of his promise, to the holiness of his presence. And all the brothers bow before Joseph, who becomes the savior of his family. And God's word is fulfilled through the repentance that he brings in the life of Judah. And what's even more remarkable, brothers and sisters, is the way God fulfills his promise in Judah's life. Of all Jacob's sons and of all Jacob's tribes, the tribe that reigns and becomes preeminent is not Joseph's tribe. It's the tribe of Judah. Now what's interesting is you go back and you think of what was so much discontent for Judah. Joseph's got a better deal than I have. Why is he going to rule the family? If he had just waited for the Lord, he could have walked instead in a path of holiness. And one day he would have discovered that He would have been the greatest. Brothers and sisters, the cross is what we celebrate this coming week. And how often do we trade God's goodness and greatness for us? For cheap things and a distorted view of ourselves. And what we celebrate when we come to Good Friday, the cross, we forget many times. It is the most horrific demonstration of the depravity of man, designed by the Romans to torture and inflict maximum pain and shame and humiliation. It's a demonstration about how horrible the human heart is. We forget that, don't we? And yet that's God's gift where his promise and his presence Meet and come and care for the worst of sinners. But brothers and sisters, we can't appreciate the greatness of God's love and his holiness unless we are willing to believe it is our sin that has put him there and unless we are willing by faith to say regardless of the cost, you are God, I belong to you, you can have my life, take it in exchange for this world of trash. And at the heart of it, brothers and sisters, wickedness is about not trusting God for who He is according to His Word. That He is infinitely good, He is infinitely gracious, that He loves you perfectly. And even if you can't see it, He is true to His Word, He is with you, and He will fulfill His promises. So as we prepare, brothers and sisters, for... Good Friday. Think of Judah. Think of our own lives. 
Think of the truth that there is no wretchedness or sin that is greater than the cross. But then ask yourself, brothers and sisters, do I really believe it? And do I believe that God is infinitely good? And do I believe he is present? And do I believe that he indeed is a God who keeps his promises? Or will I choose my own way? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and goodness. And we thank you for the testimony of Judah's life. A life that is horrible. And yet you redeemed. And, oh Lord, the one you redeemed was not only Judah. But of Judah's children in line, the ones that you chose to be in the legacy in line of King David and also your son, Jesus Christ, the one you chose was Tamar's children, Zerah and Perez, who would become the ones who would provide a line of redemption. And in this way, Lord, you show us that even the worst of our sins and tragedies, you are able to redeem. This is the testimony of the cross. And Lord Jesus, may we never walk away from it. Amen.